Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It's been my privilege to officiate at literally scores of, of weddings, many of them here at Flat Creek. And I assume that I will be officiating at one in about six months. Is that correct, son? Just that now. <laughs> Just remember, my, my stipend is high, so just remember that. But um, believe me, that will be a tough one, okay? So I've read this passage in almost every wedding I've had an opportunity to, to preach, and I preach a wedding. I think that's what we need to do. You preach a funeral, you preach a wedding. Uh, so... We stop, we're going to begin with verse 18 this morning, uh, chapter 5, but we're going to read down through verse 4 of chapter 6. Dr. Moeller talked about the importance of uh, motherhood. Obviously, what we're reading here is not only wives and husbands, but it pertains to, to mothers and fathers, and Chapter 6 pertains to children. So this is a, a focus on the family. Now I remind you that Paul's writing to Ephesus and this was a pagan city. This was not like Lynchburg, Virginia. So what he is writing is very much out of the ordinary for this city. And so the uniqueness of marriage and functional families is found not only here, a number of other places that he writes, and of course the Lord Jesus himself sanctioned marriage as well. Verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now that is the phrase that sets everything else. And so Paul now begins to describe what submission is for the wife, what submission is for the husband, and what submission is for the child. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And I mention this at every, every wedding. He wrote twice as many words to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. What love God has for his people. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, 
Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his holy word. And let's go to his grace, his throne of grace in prayer. Father, teach us where we are ignorant this morning, and we are an ignorant people. Increase our faith because we tend to be faithless people. And then, Father, for sinners, convict them so that they may see that they need the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the prayer this morning, I mentioned that there's been quite a bit of angst over the, the leaked, which is illegal, the leaked Supreme Court preliminary legal brief concerning Roe versus Wade this week. It is ironic that when the law is followed, <laughs> or when science is followed for that matter, concerned parties cry foul. We should continue to pray for the Supreme Court and the states as it appears that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. It is, and it's not only conservative justices that have written about this. There have, many, there have been many liberal justices that have said that it was, that it was uh, falsely uh, granted approval 50 years ago. There was really no constitutional grounds for its approval. And so, in a way, that answers 50 years of prayer. It doesn't mean that abortion is going away. But it does mean that perhaps there will be a little more sanity to something that is insane. So, in this passage that we've read this morning, it describes for us, obviously, marriage, but to a certain extent and a greater extent, it also is the preliminary for functional families. And if there are functional families, that means that there are some dysfunctional families, and, and really, the dysfunction within families is great. Well, why is that? Well, you just read Ephesians 5. Families are dysfunctional because they are not Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 families, pure and simple. In verse 2, look at verse 2 of chapter 5, actually verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, Paul introduces two concepts that prepare us for chapter 5. There are two concepts about those that are born again, about believers. The first thing he mentions is that believers ought to walk in love. And the second thing is that we are God's dear children. In fact, the word children, child, type of it, is found three to four times, chapter 5 and chapter 6. It is the word technon, which simply means a child is an offspring from God. And it's uh, that most of us here this morning are adults. It, that doesn't mean that as adults, 
as human beings that as adults, that we are not the children of God. And that's important to remember. In verse 8 he says, <clears throat> talking again about children, for you were once in darkness, but now you are the light uh, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then again, he in verse 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Well, dysfunctional families are those that do not walk in light. They're those that do not walk in the love of God or the wisdom of God. They take it upon themselves to define what family is, and they live accordingly, but they are dysfunctional. The child of God, when he talks about walking, he is basically saying we are to conduct ourselves, and that's what he says beginning in verse 18 that we read this morning. We are to conduct ourselves within the Holy Spirit. If we claim to be born again, then we, have the, uh, we are to submit ourselves to the Trinity, and that begins, obviously, with submitting ourselves to God the Father and the Son and then being filled with the Spirit of God. And we're to do this because God has, has, has granted his grace to us in life. And if he's granted his grace to us in life, that covers all of life. Not just being here on Sunday morning. Now the word submission that he begins to, to use uh, extensively in verse 21 means to line up under. I've preached about this a number of times. It's a, it was a military term, and it was used by the Romans, uh, the centurions, to, to sort out their uh, hundreds of soldiers to make sure that they were in the right columns, that they were in the right rows, and all of this was important for conducting military warfare. So as children of God, we're to submit, first of all, to the Lord Jesus Christ and then to each other. It refers to the authority and the order that is established within the Trinity. There is order and authority that is established between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Submission does not mean egalitarianism. It's not equity. That's not what it means. It, Paul is pointing out that God has established an order within the framework of family. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The Lord has called me to be pastor of Flat Creek. But I'm not the boss of Flat Creek. The head of every man is Christ. The deacons are not the boss of Flat Creek. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And there's a reason, obviously, that has to do with creation. We'll broach that subject a little later on. And the head of Christ is God. So when we talk about authority and order within the Trinity, 
Jesus Christ submits himself, even though he is equal to Father and Spirit, to the Father and the Spirit. Now, if Jesus does that, what should you and I do? That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So biblical submission is according to God's order and his authority. It's not something that we are to say, well, that applies to you, but it doesn't apply to me. Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesians 5 to describe that wives are to submit to their own husbands, and the reason is because a wife represents the church that submits to Jesus, and husbands then are to love their wives as Christ loves the church because the church submits and the wife submits. A lot of talk about toxic masculinity, and there's toxic femininity as well. That causes, both cause dysfunctional families. Both cause dysfunctional families. What's the main meaning of marriage? What can we glean from what Paul is telling us here? What's the main meaning of marriage? Paul defines a functional marriage as the display of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. There is no greater illustration given in the Bible of a love between a husband and a wife, of a love uh, between father and mother and children, than the love that exists between Christ and the love that he has for his church in his willingness to die for the church, indicated here by the fact that husbands and fathers should be willing to die for their wives and their children. That's the main meaning of marriage. God designed marriage to parade uh, himself before humanity in the way that Christ loves his church and the way the church loves and obeys Christ. And this is the most important thing that we can glean from Ephesians chapter 5, that all husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, and their children learn to know the true meaning of marriage, which is the display of the love of Christ for his church. Period. Now, when you read verses 23 through 25, there are a lot of things that are very familiar passages of Scripture. Well, don't let it be so familiar with, with you that the order here doesn't strike you as amazing. In three, in three verses, Paul says three times. Verse 23, he talks about uh, as Christ is head of the church. Marriage displays the fact that Christ is head of the church. In verse 24, marriage is on display as the church submits to Christ. And in verse 25, marriage is on display as Christ loved the church. You can't improve on the word of God. And so when you hear this, whether it's this morning or whether at a wedding or if you read it, private devotions, don't just blow by it. 
deeply rooted in these verses is that Christ is head, the church submits, and that Christ loved the church. What's the most important meaning of marriage? Well, it's found in the words that we see in these verses as Christ loved the church, as the church submits to Christ, as Christ loved the church. The passage is about Christ. Yeah, wives and husbands are mentioned here, but the passage is about Jesus. I think sometimes we forget that. The love that binds a man and a woman in marriage is a superb love meant to display these three facts that are listed in these verses. This is the grand scheme of marriage. It is the grand scheme of family. Without this, every family is dysfunctional. Every family. The greatness of marriage is that it displays something unspeakably great. And Paul talks about it as the great mystery. What a marvelous rendering of what God means for us within marriage. Therefore, the church is vitally important to a believer. We are his body. And when we avoid Jesus or avoid the church, guess what happens? We avoid the love of Christ. All sorts of reasons. Some very legitimate. Most are not. Are not being regularly in the house of God. That's what's on display here. That's what this is about. The church. Flat Creek. Ephesus. The church. Now God commanded Adam and Eve. We know this. Don't need to turn back there this morning. But he commanded them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it's the only command that God gave man that he's been able to keep. And we've done a pretty good job of it. Almost 8 billion people on the face of the earth now. But it's the only one outside of the grace of God that we keep. Chapter 6, in those first three verses, he talks about children. And we know that boys and girls are normally the result of the fruit of marriage. And that parents, as he talks about, he talks about fathers, but it also can, the uh, indication is parents or mothers and fathers, that we're not only responsible to raise them to be contributing members of society. I want my kids to have the best education. I want them to be the smartest. We got all these pictures that we post on Instagram and Facebook and all of these things. That's wonderful. However, Parents are responsible, as Paul Tripp said at the close of his video series, parents are responsible to make their children disciples of Christ. Are you doing that? I had an opportunity just, just last week to baptize two children. 
because their parents have taken it as a responsibility to enforce the word of God outside of school and outside of church. Now, the church is meant to reinforce. But it is our responsibility. And we shirk our responsibility. We, the, old, the Old Testament word for we sin against God when we do not teach our children well. Marriage is not meant to add more bodies to the planet. Marriage is meant to make disciples of Christ. Now, perhaps there are some couples that don't have children and for one reason or another cannot because of some reason, some issues of infertility or others. But the passage still applies because you used of God to help in areas that make children disciples. If you're married and you don't have children, it doesn't release you from the responsibility of following the word and will of God and teaching children, others' children, about the Lord Jesus Christ. So God wants to fill the earth with little Worshippers of him. That's what he wants. Now there are obstacles to this grand scheme. The grand scheme of the family. And there are great challenges both to parents and to children. There are, and we'll talk about two of them this morning. The first one is external exposure to the world that consumes them. And the second one is internal corruption, which when it's allowed to run its course will collide in tragic consequences to the external exposure. External exposure, internal corruption. And we all have it. And we need to guard our children against it. Let's talk briefly about external exposure. There was an article uh, actually last Saturday in the Wall Street Journal uh, entitled uh, America Needs a Return to First Principles and two men were uh, that have written a book with that title by the way Mentioned this, and I hadn't thought about it, but we're, we're now in the 21st century. We are 22 or so years, maybe 23 years into the, to the 21st century. Since that time, since the year 2000, there have been, have been a series of events, of crises that have engulfed our country as well as the world. One about every four or five years. In the year 2000, George W. Bush was elected president by the slimmest of margins. It went to the Supreme Court. You remember that, those of you that are old enough to do that? It divided our nation. Still divides our nation. Just less than a year later, 9-11, 
took place. And so we sustained a national security fear. The Department of Homeland Security had, was created, and we've seen and been in this state of national fear, terrorism, since that time. Thirdly, the financial collapse of 2008 and 2009 produced a fear that our financial institutions were unable to meet the stresses of demanding markets. And that's still, we see some of that even today. Fourthly, the close election of 2016 and the debate over the Electoral College, which continues. Even though it's constitutional, it still continues. We're going to have our way if we have to change everything. And that puts stress on people. Fifthly, obviously, the pandemic over the past couple of years, that produced fear that our health systems were unable to respond quickly and efficiently to a global infection, and that's true. Oh, yeah, we followed the science. We didn't know where it was going, but we followed it. And just this past couple of months, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and Putin's threat of nuclear war. Now, that's six incidents. We could, I'm sure, hone it, go a little deeper, but we won't. That's impacted you. It's impacted me. It's impacted your children. And it's impacted the way we parent our children. Life is, frankly, no longer simple. It hasn't been simple for a long, long time. The government has attempted to intervene, but all it's done is arrogate itself to use these crises to expand its authority. That's what governments do. And because of this and our sin, families are no longer as close-knit there was a time when families were only marginally influenced from the outside world. That's not the case today. We are very much influenced by the outside world. Not only these six, but others. Local, national, international. Many, many years ago, people were raised perhaps in one area. They spent still in some cases spend their whole lives there. Schools were generally local and parents were involved and aided the school systems to teach the children. Some people went away to college, but most of them returned. That's not the case anymore. We live in an extremely fluid society. And because of that, we forget that parents, churches, and schools had community standards which were established for childhood education. These followed measured increments of learning with measured exposure to reality that suited the child's age and the capacity to deal with issues. Do you think that's the case today? In 1972... Fifty years ago, Neil Postman, 
who then was a professor at New York University, wrote a book entitled The Disappearance of Childhood 50 Years Ago. And he set forth the thesis that the idea that childhood as a unique period of human development has disappeared. Quoting him, he wrote, The maintenance of childhood depended on the principles of managed information and sequential learning. That's when a child really was a child because a child only knew certain things. And the sordid secrets of life that child that children didn't know were kept from them for a long period of time because they needed to be children. Well, they'll be exposed to this in school and and they need to and that they need to be children. First and foremost. They're going to be exposed to it. Yeah, I was sheltered when I was at home, but look at me now. I was cool once upon a time, and you were too. But the past 50 years have taken its toll. When children are left without parental authority, when they are not corrected, to submit, then all they have to do is go to the phone. And adults do it too. And so what happens is these devices, these electronic devices, and there are myriad of them, they provide us with a sustained information overload. And they produce a population of children that is overexposed to most things they should not be exposed to. Well, they'll be exposed anyway. You don't... (laughs) Think. Think. They are overexposed to everything without regard for any plan. No care or concern for their immature and their undeveloped minds. And they are exposed to a culture that does not care about them and they are introduced to a culture of death. Now you may think I'm being too harsh, but no, I'm not. These are just the facts. External exposure. The internet permits the world's best and worst that anybody that uh, at any time can access. And so the whole educational sequence and hierarchy has collapsed under the weight of social media. We're concerned today about information. We're concerned with disinformation. We're concerned with this information, misinformation, but little emphasis is given to the truth except for my truth. Now, this is not only true of children, but... Adults have been seduced by this modern 
psychological construct of identity. Carl Truman wrote, if we are above all what we think, what we feel, what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs these thoughts, these feelings or these desires inhibits us as people and prevents us from being the self that we are convinced that we are. Such obstructions inhibit identity in a deep and substantial way. Verbal insults, of course, are nothing new and have a history as long as that of humanity itself. Goliath mocked David. But with the rise of the psychological self, words have taken on a new cultural power as witnessed by the fierce debates that now rage over pronouns. The use of a word deemed harmful or denigrating becomes in the world of psychology, uh, of psychological identity rather, an assault upon that person as real as a blow from a hand or from a fist. Thomas Jefferson You heard of him? Most people have. In his notes on the state of Virginia, Jefferson famously commented that it does me no energy, uh, uh, quote, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are 20 gods or no God. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. For Jefferson, this was why freedom of religion was not a complicated matter. The personal religious beliefs of others did not damage him financially, or harm him physically. But that does not apply today. In a world where inner psychology dominates how we think of ourselves, then feelings too become very important in how we conceptualize harm. In this world, the personal religious beliefs of our neighbors are of concern. Because it implies, disagreement implies, that somebody is wrong. And today that constitutes a form of oppression. No pockets have been picked and no legs have been broken. But my feelings are hurt. And identities are therefore marginalized. We become oppressed. And so we deny legitimacy to those that have the right to free speech. End quote. Carl Truman. Today's Mother's Day. Alistair Begg quoted from, this was in 2018. He quoted from the Times of London. There was a headline in preparation for Mother's Day, and it read, Mother's Day cards go gender neutral. Rate Rose, which is one of the main grocery stores in England, is selling gender neutral Mother's Day cards as retailers reduce their use of the M word to make today's celebrations more transgender inclusive. They're selling a Happy You Day card. Bought Robbie a Happy Mother's Day card. It was not a Happy You Day card. Okay, couldn't find one. Didn't look for it, as a matter of fact. And there are scores of Mother's Day or scores of cards in the Mother's Day range in which the word mother does not appear. They've been joined by other retailers who are offering a 
Two moms are better than one car. And Dad, thanks for being the most amazing mom. That's where we are. Again, 2018, Postman wrote in 1972. Here's the Bible. Here's the London Times. Here's the New York Times. For that matter, the Wall Street Journal. The Lynchburg News and Daily Retreat. You read, the, you read the paper, you read the Bible. This is the culture that our children and you and I are exposed to, this external exposure. There's a second obstacle. And that obstacle, that second obstacle to the grand biblical scheme of things is our eternal, internal rather, corruption. The reason there's external exposure is because there's internal corruption. Out of the heart of man, Jesus said, comes this wickedness. Yeah, we, we're going to be confronted by our culture. That's inevitable. It was true in Ephesus when Paul wrote this. It was true when Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this as commentary to Ephesians 5, and he wrote this in 1976, and I quote, We're living in a world which is witnessing a dramatic breakdown in dis discipline. A spirit of lawlessness is abroad, and things which were once more or less taken for granted are not only being queried and questioned, but are being reduced and dismissed. There's no question but that we are living in an age where there is a ferment of evil working actively in the whole of society. In many ways, we are face-to-face -face with a total collapse of what is called civilization and society. End quote. A little less than 50 years ago. Culture exposure is due to our sin nature. We like it. But I would remind you of this, Satan's first ploy in the Garden of Eden was to destroy the harmony between Adam and Eve, and when he did that, it resulted in destroying the relationship that Adam and Eve had with the Father. That's what the slewfoot, old slewfoot, does. And we fall prey to it because we, without Jesus and his grace, we are internally corrupt. Children are not immune because they are not born without a sin nature. I'm going to give you five things briefly to bring this to a close. Turn with me to Psalm 127. I know you get scared when, you, when I say two or three things, but this, hopefully, we'll see what the Scripture says. The first thing that we need to remember about children is found in Psalm 127 in verse 3. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are rewards and gifts from God. And how do we know this? Because of what we just read. There doesn't need to be any explanation to this. I mean, the exegete, the, to interpret that is pretty simple. Children are heritage from the Lord. 
So on your worst day with your child, you could look at them and say, thank God you're my little heritage. Thank God you're my little reward. We said that to our children often, didn't we, Stephanie and Megan? <laughs> you're just, I just love you. You little brat, I mean, you little rascal. They're heritage of the Lord. They're no perfect children except grandchildren. Those of you that are grandparents know that. Okay? They are heritage from the Lord. Secondly, they they are ours for only a limited time. 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is the story of Hannah. As she prayed. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1, 1 Samuel. And she said, Hannah, O my Lord... As your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. Our children are not ours. They're on loan. We can't control them. As parents, and, as parents, God has made us guardians and custodians, but we're not owners. They are given to us as a heritage. They're individuals. They are made in the image of God. They are our heritage. They are our gifts. They have their own donor. They have their own DNA. And their own personality, their own temperament. And yes, they have their own standing outside of grace until the Spirit of God introduces them to the grace in Jesus Christ. And they have a need of the Savior and the gospel. Don't ever forget that. Children are heritage from the Lord. They are ours for just a limited time. And third, they're flawed from conception. Sometimes it's common or even an instinct, we think of it instinctively, to think of newborn children, oh, they're so, they're so innocent, they're so precious. They're simply moral and spiritual clean sheets. And if we were to put them in a perfect environment, they would grow up perfectly. But No. The Bible tells us otherwise. David, in two Psalms, in Psalm 58, 3, he said, The wicked are estranged from the the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. In Psalm 51 and 5, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin that my mother conceived me. Children on heritage, they're on loan for us for a while. They're flawed from conception. The Bible says that every child 
has a congenital heart disease. Every child is born like you and I. We are guilty and depraved. Now, I've told you this hundreds of times. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we can be. That's not what it means. It means there is no part of our life that is not infected and invaded by the reality of sin. No part. And it doesn't take very long for this to become a reality. These little heritages and these little gifts from God, what happens to them when they throw their tantrums and they become, uh, they have this animosity toward us? Because they're flawed from conception. Fourthly, and because of their sin nature, children need the commandments. Whatever choice we might make about our children's education, we as parents are responsible to instruct them in the law of God. They won't know that they've wronged God if they don't know that they've broken the law of God. That's sin. That's why we teach them. That's why the preacher preaches about breaking the law of God because it convicts us. Children need conviction. I was convicted when I came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Conviction is a good thing. It means the Spirit of God loves you and wants you to come to a saving knowledge of Him. The Ten Commandments and others are an expression of God's absolute perfect way for life to be lived and enjoyed. They are a mirror to show us that we don't love God as we should, that we do tell lies, that we are covetous, that we do think wrong thoughts, that we are jealous and envious and so forth and so on. We read from Proverbs this morning, and there are a number of them on the back of the bulletin today. And for time, I will not read them, but Proverbs 4, 3 and 4 says, When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender, and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Now, the commands don't save, but they point us to the Savior. And finally, children need to understand that God's law that within the context, rather, of God's law is found, God's grace. Commandments are given to convict us, to highlight our need of salvation. We know that children are gifts from the Lord, they're heritage from the Lord, they're on loan for a time, they're flawed from conception, they need the commandments, but thankfully they can be saved by grace. So we teach our children to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, 4, and we read that this morning. It says, fathers, he reminds them there that they are to, uh, not to provoke the children to wrath, but to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We read the Gospels to them. We show them how Jesus lived that Jesus was born into a functional family. He kept the law of God in its entirety. 
and he kept it perfectly. We tell them that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. He bore the punishment that they deserve and that you and I deserve. We've broken God's good law. It's good. And he paid our sin and covered all of our weakness, all our wickedness, all of our waywardness. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is ours. When the children wander away from the externals because of the full expression of their internal depravity, this hinders them from seeing the grand scheme of marriage, of family, and of church family. What do they need to know? If you're listening, say amen. amen. This is what they need to know. They need to know that there is more grace in Christ Jesus than there is sin in them. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Do you know that this morning? There is more grace in Christ than sin in them. Paul said, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, your heritage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We live in a world that seemingly has forgotten God. But forgive us, Father, where we as declared believers oftentimes forget God. We don't submit to you. We, we claim sometimes executive privilege as if because we're children of God, there are certain things that, that we can get away with. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died in order that we might be forgiven of that wayward mindset. I pray for every family that is here this morning. Lord, how we need families that function within the parameters that we've read today. And Lord, I would pray that if there is one here this morning, be they child or adult, that does not know your Savior, our prayer is that you would move in their heart, that they understand that they have broken if they've broken one law, the scripture says they've broken all of them. But in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. There is grace. There is mercy. Call them to the foot of the cross today as believers. Forgive us where we've neglected so, so many things. We have endeavored to be busy without thinking of what you would have us to learn as we are still to know about you. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of the service today. In Je Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> so we're going to sing one verse of a in invitation hymn this morning.
The majority, obviously, of this message was to parents, to grandparents. <clears throat> but if you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, it's, it's applicable to you as well. And so we would be remiss this morning if not to remind you as we sing only one verse today, if the Lord has spoken to you, we're going to give you the opportunity to, to make your way out of the pew and we can take you to a private prayer room and there with the Bible leads you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though you were, you have this internal corruption, Christ died to remove that, to pay for that. So we're going to sing and give you an opportunity to come. As child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord is Savior. Perhaps you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that today as well. As a child of God, <clears throat> I don't know of any family, whether it be here or, other, uh, or elsewhere, that from time to time doesn't have issues. That's just the nature of it. When a sinner, when a male sinner marries a female sinner, they have little male and female sinners. And so this morning, perhaps you need to rededicate, consecrate your life to being parent, whatever the Lord has called you to do. What number, Brother Mike, uh, Brother Vance? 320. 320. If the Lord spoke, won't you come as we stand and sing?